Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I am pleased to be able to play another talk by the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. The talk that uh, we're about to listen to was recorded in December of 1988. And back then, personal computers were still a new thing. In fact, most people were just then learning how to use one, as primitive as they were back then. And that was uh, four years before the World Wide Web made the Internet a tool for everybody to use. So when you hear Wilson sounding like a kid in the candy store when he's talking about personal computers, well, uh, (laughs) that's how we all felt back then. And please keep in mind that a significant number of our friends here in the Psychedelic Salon weren't even born yet when this talk was given. Which means that uh, you are basically going to hear a voice from what seems like the Dark Ages right now. So my challenge for you is to see if you can pick out anything that he says that is still relevant yet today. You see, this isn't all going to be an old computer history lesson today. And now, here is the one and only Robert Anton Wilson. The, uh, the, the, the likelihood that somebody will penetrate the IRS computers with a virus to wipe out records selectively or wholesale is almost a certainty. That's the opinion of one of the uh, authors in Reality Hackers magazine, which is sort of the house journal of cyberpunk. And it's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, when I woke up this morning, uh, picked up the L.A. Times, the first thing I saw on the first page is there's been another ghostly electronic intruder wandering through the Pentagon again. Did you see that story today? Somebody penetrated the Pentagon again and has been uh, manipulating uh, records and uh, altering things. Uh, That's the second time in two years. The last time was in 1986. There was a chap uh, whose ghostly electronic traces were found at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, and they started tracking him, and they found he'd been in through the Pentagon and wandered through the Naval Data Center in Norfolk, Virginia, and he'd been into Lawrence Berkeley Labs, where they do all the advanced nuclear research to find better and better ways to kill more and more people. Uh, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories is the uh, the epitome, the acme, the, the synecdoche of uh, modern American civilization. They have the best brains on the planet, or some of the best brains on the planet, and they're paying them fantastically high salaries to turn their intelligence to one project alone how to deliver more and more explosive power over longer and longer distances in shorter and shorter times to kill more and more people. This is the the triumph of human intelligence. Uh, We've arrived at the point where people can uh, become millionaires. Uh, Scientists can become millionaires uh, by working on a project that, that, that is that socially useful. And if we give them a few more years, they'll learn how to kill everybody by pressing one button without delivering anything anywhere. And then we'll have achieved the goal of Western civilization, I guess. I am going to read a passage from my favorite author. Uh, All all, all writers love to read their works aloud. 
This is, uh, uh, Schrodinger's cat is set in a series of parallel universes. There are a great many physicists who believe that there really are parallel universes. That was a concept that started in science fiction, but it's now taken very seriously, especially by the younger generation of physicists, and especially by the ones who did a lot of acid in the 60s. <laughs> in this parallel universe, uh, one of my favorite novelists appears uh, with a different sex, because uh, every, everything that can happen does happen according to this model uh, in quantum mechanics. It's known as the Everett Wheeler-Graham model. Everything that can happen does happen. So everybody who's born male in this universe is born female in another universe. Everybody born female in this universe is born male in another universe. And that is a thought for male chauvinists and feminists to ponder tonight, if they don't ponder anything else I said. Simon Moon once met the famous computer expert in Unistat, Wilhelmina Burroughs, granddaughter of the inventor of the first calculating machine. Have you noticed that the computers are all getting weirder lately, Simon asked, testing her. The programmers are getting weirder, Ms. Burroughs said, not falling into Simon's trap. I knew it was bound to happen as soon as I read a survey, back around 68, I think it was showing that programmers use LSD more than any other professional group. You look like an acid head yourself, she added with her characteristic bluntness. Well, as a matter of fact, I have dabbled a little trip now and then. No pattern of abuse, surely. That's what they all say, Ms. Burroughs sniffed. But the cookie glitch pops up more and more places every day. I'll wager you've seen it by now, haven't you? Of course you have. Does everybody know the cookie glitch? Now, there's a few people who haven't encountered the cookie glitch yet. I first heard of it around 1976 from a guy working in the computer department of Bank of America in San Francisco. Uh, you're working on an ordinary uh, program on the computer, and suddenly the screen goes blank, and up comes a little box, and it says, give me a cookie. Uh, and you can't get the damn machine to do anything until you figure out how to respond to that. And the correct answer is just to type, tap out on the keyboard, a cookie. And up comes a box saying, yummy, that was good. And then the computer goes back to work. And uh, since, <laughs> since, I, since I included the cookie glitch in this book, that cookie glitch has become much more widespread. It sometimes makes me wonder about the responsibilities that a writer has and the, the danger of talking about certain <coughs> ideas. I uh, forget that thing about the penetrating the IRS computers. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I brought that up at all. <clears throat> I'll wager you've seen it a few times, haven't you? Of course you have. Yes, but certainly that's harmless humor, wouldn't you say? Ms. Burroughs peered at him with insectoid intensity. Are you aware, she asked, that millions of previously law-abiding citizens have stopped paying their credit card debts? First, they get a little postcard that says, here, I've got one in my purse. She rummaged about in an alligator bag and showed Simon a postcard that said, congratulations, you are one of the lucky 500 whose debts have been canceled by the network. Keep your mouth shut and play it cool. <laughs> lucky 500, Ms. Burroughs said with a roomy cackle of skepticism. Lucky 10 million is more like the truth. 
This postcard was turned into Diner's Club by an honest man, and you know how few of them there are. A check showed that his tapes had been erased and there was no record that he ever owed anything. God alone knows how many others there are who have taken advantage of the scam. Well, Simon said, maybe there are only 500. Maybe it was just a one-shot by some joker with a Robin Hood complex. I am an expert, Ms. Burroughs reminded him, ignoring the fact that he was an expert, too. I have no idea how many there are out there in Unistat who've taken advantage of the network's liberality, but I'll wager there are millions. Lucky 500. That's just to make the marks feel that they've been specially selected as the network leads them down the primrose path to anarchy. Uh, the title of tonight's entertainment is Preparing for the 21st Century. And to prepare for the 21st century, you've got to be aware uh, that computer viruses are going to play an increasingly large role in all of our lives. Uh, <laughs> the, um, since you all like the cookie glitch, there's, uh, there's another one that's uh, very popular. Uh, uh, I heard about from a friend of mine. Uh, if uh, at a certain bank, if you're part of the day staff, when you use the computer, you type in your name and your identification number, and it starts programming. At night, if you're working late, and you come back after dinner, you type in your name and your ID number, and the computer type uh, prints out on the screen, crazy man, what's your sign? And uh, usually it just goes to work after that, but sometimes it follows it up with another one. If you try to get it to go to work, it asks, scored any good grass lately? <laughs> and uh, there are even computers that occasionally startle people by saying, I've been wanting to tell you what lovely eyes you have. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you react when a machine makes a pass at you? Well, uh, the, uh, there's even a, there's, uh, my favorite virus uh, is a purely humorous and harmless one. Uh, if you uh, exchange uh, software with friends, which of course is against the law and nobody does it except everybody who owns a computer. Uh, if you exchange software with a friend, this is likely to pop up in your computer sooner or later. Um, uh, somebody writing on viruses, uh, said the only, the only safe rule is don't take software from anybody. Just say no. I, I, thought, that was not, I thought that was Nancy Reagan's slogan, uh, which is very, very confusing when you consider, you know, that all the evidence that the CIA is the main importer of cocaine. And, uh, you know, they were running a bank in Miami, the, uh, the World Finance Corporation in Miami, turned out to be the main laundromat for cocaine money from the CIA's favorite South American dictators and the CIA owned the bank. That came out a couple of years ago. The Dade County District Attorney tried to prosecute and he found that the CIA was blocking his prosecution every step of the way. So Nancy says, just say no, and the CIA says, just fly low. And, and so, so it goes. The, uh, I digressed, as usual. Uh, that's deliberate, by the way. Uh, uh, the, way, the way to approach the 21st century is to realize that linear thinking has completely collapsed and we've got to learn to think in nonlinear modes, like modern art. I'll get back to that thought in a few minutes. I was, <laughs> I was about to tell you about uh, the subgenius uh, virus. 
How many people here are members of the Church of the Subgenius? Oh, that's good, that's good. It's encouraging to see that the truth is reaching the masses at last. The, the, the Church of the Subgenius was founded by my good friend, J.R. Bob Dobbs of Dallas, Texas. Uh, Bob was a simple, simple aluminum siding salesman until one day in 1957, he was in an elevator that got stalled between floors in Palm Beach, and the only other passenger on the elevator was L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and, and because they were stuck between floors and they didn't know when they were going to get rescued, uh, Hubbard revealed the secret of power to J.R. Bob Dobbs. And so now Bob has his own church and millions of zombies out on the streets proselytizing. And uh, he's, got, he's uh, well on his way to being as rich as Hubbard or the Pope or Rajanish or any of the people in that racket. Uh, the, the secret of power, uh, you can, uh, all you got to do is send a dollar to the Church of the Subgenius and they'll send you a pile of literature that looks like absolute gibberish. If you pass that test, if you could find the grain of truth in that, you will then send them $10 and they'll send you an even bigger pile of literature that looks even more like gibberish. If you can make sense out of that, they'll sell you more for $100 and so on. Eventually, if you get through all the subgenius literature, you'll achieve slack. And when you have slack, all your problems will be solved. Uh, the universe, as, as you know, the Chinese think the universe consists of yin and yang. Uh, that's a very primitive approach. Uh, modern physicists say it consists of positive and negative charges, which is much more sophisticated. The deep metaphysical truth was approximated by my friend Malaclips the Younger in San Francisco at the head temple of the Discordian Society, House of Apostles of Aris, on the site of the beautiful future San Andreas Canyon. And uh, that, that is that the universe consists of Hodge and Podge in equal balance. And that's symbolized by the Discordian sacred cow, which some of you must have seen by now. That uh, looks like the Chinese yin-yang, except uh, on the yang side, it's got a pentagon representing the acme of bureaucracy. And on the yin side, it's got an apple representing the golden apple of Aris, the goddess of chaos and also representing the apple of Eve, which led to the beginning of human curiosity and evolution. And it also represents the apple that used to disappear from the stage of the Flatbush Burlesque Theater in Brooklyn when <laughs> Peaches LaRue did the split on top of it at the end of her striptease. Uh, uh, the, uh, there's, a lot of more, there's a lot more heavy metaphysics in the sacred cow or the hodgepodge, but uh, that was only an approximation. It was J.R. Bob Dobbs who discovered the universe consists of something and nothing. <laughs> and and that, that's, that's pretty, well, you know, uh, uh, atoms in the void is the way Lucretius put it, but uh, uh, in yin and the, the I Ching, it's yin and yang, on and off uh, signs. But if you take anything like, uh, say, this uh, glass, which the naive among you will think is full of water, <sighs> never drink water, fish fuck in it. Uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, this glass of uh, mysterious liquid, which some of you are naive enough to think is water, when you look at this, you see something. When you look around it, you see nothing. 
So the whole universe, if you stop to think of it, consists of always you're seeing something with nothing all around it, right? Uh, if you look at me, you see something, I hope. I hope I'm not as translucent as George Bush. And then you look around me, you see nothing. And if you can find the perfect balance between all the something in the universe and all the nothing in the universe, then you've got slack. And when you've got slack, then you can get something for nothing. And when you've reached that level of enlightenment, you can start your own church and get as rich as Bob Dobbs or Rajanish or the Pope or the Ayatollah or any of those people. And anyway, the subject, that's a brief introduction to subgenius theology that did not reveal the secret of power, except indirectly for those of you who have spiritual insight have detected it in the midst of my words. And in case you didn't get it, I'll make it more clear with a parable. Uh, once there was a poor Hindu boy named Rajanish. <laughs> he, he lived in terrible poverty in India, where things were very backward in those days. And he read in the newspaper that a Hindu had come over to the United States and found so many seekers after truth that he was able to buy a Rolls Royce. You know who that was? That was Krishnamurti. He, he was the first one to get a Rolls Royce out of all the seekers in the United States. And Rajanish read that and he had this flash of darshan or satori or something, like a light bulb going on over his head. He said, in America, there's a seeker born every minute. <laughs> so so, so he, came, he came over here and pretty soon he had 93 Rolls Royces. Right? 93. Everybody, everybody was going around asking, what the hell does he need 93 Rolls Royces for? Well, what's the point of 93 Rolls Royces? Well, every time he got another Rolls Royce, he'd take a picture, a Polaroid snapshot of it, and he'd write on the back, fuck you, and send it to Krishnamurti. That's, that, that's the way you play the guru game. <clears throat> that's the way Bob plays it, anyway. The, the subgenius virus that's going around which was the beginning of this uh, tasteless and regrettable digression. Uh, the subgenius virus, uh, you're just innocently uh, doing whatever you're doing with your computer, maybe looking at uh, Mac Playmate, uh, maybe uh, uh, doing the payroll for your company, uh, maybe word processing, and suddenly the screen goes blank, and you think, oh, Jesus, what did I do now? What key did I touch? What, what, what's, what's happening now? And while you're trying to figure out whether you should push this one or push that one or wait and see if it'll correct itself or call the repair shop, up on the screen comes J.R. Bob Dobbs face. And it says, fuck you if you can't take a joke. <laughs> and then it goes blank and it starts programming again. The penetration of the IRS is virtually a certainty. Who said that? Oh, that was Michael Synergy and Reality Hackers. Uh, have you ever seriously considered the sex life of the Norway rat? This randy little rodent, this voluptuous vermin, this sex-starved invertebrate has been multiplying at an alarming rate throughout human history. And this is especially astounding because human beings keep trying to get rid of the Norway rat. The Norway rat is so smart that he's managed to arrange things that the wrong people get blamed for him. The Norway rat did not originate in Norway. 
The Norway rat originated in Southeast Asia, probably in the vicinity of what's now Cambodia and Thailand, the Golden Triangle, where all the opium in the world comes from, or most of it. And the Norway rat uh, followed the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply, and eventually found there wasn't enough to eat in that area, so it migrated northwestwards into India and kept on spreading its way through the Near East until around the 13th century of the Christian era, it arrived in Europe, bringing bubonic plague with it, which made it one of the most unpopular animals on the planet. Now, ever since then, human beings have been trying to get rid of this critter. But it goes on being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, in the 18th century, it arrived as far north as Norway, and the Norwegians have been blamed for it ever since. It's not only called the Norway rat in popular speech, the scientific label is Mus ratus norvegicus. And the poor Norwegians had nothing to do with it. They were just one of the poor people who uh, had to give it hospitality temporarily while it was eating their uh, grains and whatnot. Uh, the Norway rat continued its steady uh, increase and in migration and uh, western, westerly and vaguely northern, northerly direction. In 1776, it had uh, in, infested Philadelphia to the extent that the delegates at the Continental Congress were all complaining about the rats in the hotels and inns there. In 1849, Sutter discovered gold in California, which was the beginning of the vast migration that brought all of us here. And by 1859, the Norway rat was found in San Francisco. I don't have a date on when it arrived in Los Angeles, but I guess it must have been a few years before San Francisco. Uh, the Norway rat was found in Hawaii in 1872. Uh, it is, uh, so it's now back on the doorstep of Asia. It has, it has circumnavigated the globe in the, in the last 3,000 years, in spite of all that the human race can do to get rid of it. Now, do you think you are that smart? Do you think you could survive the whole human race trying to get rid of you and prosper and spread like that? This is a very intelligent little animal. And lately, the Norway rat is increasingly found on uh, transcontinental jets. They are learning to travel faster, <laughs> just, like, just, just like us. Uh, pretty soon, there will be space colonies up there. The Russians have a permanently personed, or should I say entitied, colony. You shouldn't say personed, because that suggests human chauvinism. Uh, which I'm trying to avoid by starting out with the Norway rat before I talk about human evolution. Uh, Schrodinger's cat begins with one of the, one of my favorite sentences of all that I have ever written. And like all writers, I have an insatiable appetite for my own sentences. But uh, Schrodinger's cat begins with the sentence, the majority of Terrans were six-legged. Very few people ever stop and think about that any more than we stop and think of how we have served as hosts for the Norway rat and its steady progression across the world. The majority of, uh, of the intelligent entities on this planet are six-legged. If, uh, if you get a hole in your screen doors, you'll find out what I mean. Uh, J.B.S. Haldane, a great British biologist and mathematician, he was once asked, if you admitted a mind behind evolution, what would you say is its outstanding characteristic? And he said, an inordinate fondness for beetles. 
There, there are more species of beetles than there are of all the other insects on the planet, more than there are of all the mammals on the planet. There are more individual beetles on this planet than there are individual anything else's. And so when you try to contemplate the mind behind evolution, remember, it likes beetles. There's not much sign that it likes you. <clears throat> In Thailand and Cambodia, where the Norway rat began its peregrinations and infestations about this uh, globe of ours uh, sometime around uh, 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. Somebody discovered that if you put copper and tin in enough heat, you get something entirely new. That's, this, this was the beginning of synergetic thinking. Uh, Bucky Fuller did such a good job of popularizing the word synergy in the last 20 years of his life that I'm sure everybody in this audience knows what synergy means. Synergy means the type of situation in which you put two and two together and you don't get four, you get eight or 16 or something else. It's a non-additive relationship. And the word synergy comes from metallurgy because it was in metallurgy that we first discovered when you put two things together, you don't get the sum of the two, you get a, a much higher uh, and unpredictable result. And that happened first in somewhere around Cambodia, Thailand, when they found out that putting copper and tin uh, together gives you bronze. Uh, it had to happen in uh, Thailand uh, area because the, that has an inordinate amount of the world's copper and tin. So even if the, even if there weren't any early experimenters with a theory or putterers without a theory, just by sheer serendipity, enough copper and tin was bound to fall into a fire that bronze was bound to come out sooner or later. But that gave birth to the Bronze Age. And when we talk about the Bronze Age, we mean a mutation in human consciousness and behavior. We mean a total transformation of the human species. The Bronze Age, which Alvin Toffler calls the first wave of civilization, uh, created human beings entirely different than tribal civilization. And uh, people from a, a tribal culture can be distinguished very clearly uh, from people from uh, a Bronze Age culture. In every respect, there, there are differences in uh, the whole style of life. Uh, Bronze Age culture begins with uh, the uh, building of uh, huge cities, irrigation works, and the creation of a divine king who is almost always considered a direct descendant of the sun. The Inca in Peru was considered a descendant of the sun, so was the, the king of the Aztecs. Uh, Hirohito is still considered directly descended from the sun by pious Shintoists. Uh, in the 17th century, within the Christian world, uh, Louis XIV was still called the Sun King. And these Bronze Age Sun King civilizations spread across the world in a couple of millennium. After, the, after bronze was discovered, it only took uh, about 3,000 to 4,000 years before most of the world had been entirely transformed. All the tribal peoples were being exterminated or incorporated, and the world was one great, big, vast conglomerate of agricultural Bronze Age civilizations, all of them fighting one another. The, uh, the, the biggest... Uh, of all, uh, at one point was the Roman Empire, but far bigger than that, by 1750 was the British Empire, which was the first empire of which it could be truly said 
Uh, on the British Empire, the sun never sets. Uh, that's because God wouldn't trust an Englishman in the dark. Or at least that's what they say in Ireland. <laughs> Around 1750, well, in 1765, actually, uh, James Watt was looking at his mother's tea kettle and watching the lid pop up and down as the water heated, and he thought, gee, the water is turning into steam, and the steam is making the top jump up and down. If I had enough steam, I could make it jump higher. If I had enough steam, I could make that turn a wheel. And that's the way we got the steam engine, and the human race mutated to an entirely new level. Industriality, as Alvin Toffler calls it, spread across the world. The old agricultural civilizations were quickly replaced by industrial civilizations, and that took a matter of 200 years. Uh, the first wave civilizations, the Sun King, Bronze Age agricultural civilizations, took millenniums to spread across the world. The industrial civilizations did it in only two centuries. The, there's an acceleration factor there. We're going from millenniums to centuries. The, the rate of change has increased tenfold. Uh, by 1950, uh, most of the world had been incorporated into industrial civilization. Uh, the agricultural civilizations that survived were colonies of the industrial civilizations. Uh, around 1950, in 1948, uh, John von Neumann invented the first programmable computer. And uh, I often think that's why we're all alive today. Uh, von Neumann was a uh, one of the great minds of the 20th century. He uh, he uh, invented quantum logic, which I I consider one of the greatest advances in human intellectual history. Uh, we we had been brainwashed, at least in the Western world, for two th over 2,000 years to believe that everything in the universe is, is either true or false. That's Aristotelian logic, which is based on the children's game of guess which hand it's in. We started out with guess which hand it's in, and in the Orient they developed I Ching out of that, but the Orient was a little more subtle than the Occident, so in between yin and yang they put a moving line. Uh, Aristotle persuaded the Occidental world we didn't need the moving line, and so we got an either-or logic either true or false, without anything in between. Von Neumann invented the first three-valued logic in the Western world, which is equivalent to the moving line in the Yi Jing. And uh, that was uh, his answer to the Schrodinger's cat problem, which brings me back to uh, the book I was reading from earlier. You see, it's all one seamless web, as Alan Watts used to say. Um, the Schrodinger's cat dilemma is uh, this. If you, uh, by the way, Schrodinger called this a fiendish, uh, a fiendish device. Many people, when they hear about this, they think Schrodinger must have had a morbid mind. Uh, actually, he was trying to highlight in a significant way the fundamental problem of quantum mechanics, which is that quantum mechanics works very efficiently. Almost all modern technology is based on quantum mechanics, and yet there are no two physicists who agree with each other about well, what quantum mechanics means philosophically, what it means in respect to our view of the reality in which we live, or if there is a reality. And uh, if you use Schrodinger's fiendish device, as he called it, you'd have a box with a cat in it and a poison gas pellet, and you'd have a radioactive metal decaying. 
And at a certain point in the radioactive decay, uh, there'd be enough atoms ejected that the poison gas pellet would be exploded. And when the poison gas pellet explodes, the cat dies. Now, uh, the idea of physics is uh, that you should have theories accurate enough that mesh with reality well enough, that are isomorphic enough with sensory, sensual, space-time experience, existential experience, that you can predict from the theory of physics what will happen in space-time, sensory, sensual experience. That's the goal of physics. And uh, uh, so if you sit down and solve the problem uh, in terms of the equations of quantum mechanics, you take any time after you start the experiment, say 15 minutes, and you solve the equations for 15 minutes, and you find the state vector in the equation collapses to two values. That always happens in quantum mechanics. So you've got an eigenstate, as it's called, in which the poison gas pellet has been exploded because there's been enough atoms ejected. And you've got another eigenstate in which the poison gas pellet hasn't exploded. Therefore, you've got a dead cat and a live cat. Now, the cat remains in this mixed state. Uh, the cat is both dead and alive until you open the door and the box. This is the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. When you open the door and the box, the quantum uncertainty collapses and the cat becomes either dead or alive. But as, uh, but as long as you leave the door closed, the cat is both dead and alive. That's the, that's the theme of my novel, Schrodinger's Cat. You see, that's why William Burroughs is a male in this universe and a female in that universe. Every possibility is equally real. Uh, Schrodinger invented this Gedanken experiment, or goddammit experiment, I think is the English translation of that, uh, to, to bring to the forefront of discussion. Do we believe the equations of quantum mechanics, or do we believe common sense? Uh, the argument for believing common sense is how the hell can a cat be dead and alive at the same time? That's just sheer nonsense. Even if it's elegant mathematics, it can't refer to the real world. Uh, the argument for believing quantum mechanics rather than common sense is quantum mechanics works, and the whole history of science has been a continuous onslaught against common sense in which one by one everything we believed in common sense turned out to be untrue. As Einstein said, common sense is what tells us the Earth is flat. So you pay your money and you take your choice. You can believe quantum mechanics or you can believe common sense. Uh, von Neumann uh, decided not to believe either quantum mechanics as it was then understood or common sense. He proposed that the universe has three values. It's not just true or false, like in Aristotle. It's got the three values of the I Ching, yin, yang, and a moving line or in English, yes, no, and maybe. So there's a universe in which the cat is dead, and a universe in which the cat is alive, and a universe in which the cat is in the maybe state. And if you stop to think about it, most, uh, most events in uh, our lives are in the maybe state. Very few things collapse definitely into a yes or no. We try to force them to collapse into a yes or no because we've been trained by Aristotelian logic to want to get yes or no answers. But if you're rigorously honest with yourself, you will discover that a, a simple question like, did you have eggs for breakfast last Wednesday, uh, does not have a definite yes or no answer. Well, you can do is say maybe. You can ask the people you live with, and you'll get three different opinions. No, it was Thursday you had eggs. Yes, it was Wednesday you had eggs. Most things remain in the maybe state. Uh, in addition to clarifying quantum mechanics with that wonderful insight, or confusing physicists thoroughly with that bit of obfuscation, whichever way you want to look at it, 
uh, von Neumann went on to design the first programmable computer, as I said, ushered in the information age, and he also invented game theory, which is an elegant system of mathematics, which he started out uh, to explain uh, the best possible strategy for poker players. And as he expanded the mathematics of it, he discovered he had a system for telling, uh, for making decisions in business competition, because business is a great deal like poker. Uh, business depends on getting the right stuff in your hands. It also depends on not letting your competitors know what you've got in your hand until you want them to know. And very often it depends on letting your competitors think you've got something in your hand that you don't have in your hand at all. You see the analogies? And after von Neumann was uh, through uh, developing math mathematical game theory to cover business, he discovered that it fits war games, too. As a matter of fact, the word war games comes directly out of von Neumann. And uh, so they started programming computers to solve uh, war games. They fight, they fight wars on computers instead of fighting them with, uh, with us. And uh, that's why we're all alive here tonight. Uh, because um, when you use von Neumann's game theory uh, with uh, the computers that grew out of the von Neumann revolution, uh, and you feed in a scenario to a computer and you ask uh, a kind of question that somebody like Ollie North or Dr. Strangelove or uh, Henry Kissinger might ask. Now, if we use this strategy, can we kill all the Russians without getting killed ourselves? And the computer will solve the problem and come up with the answer, no, you get killed too. So they say, oh, damn it. Back to the drawing board. So they spent five years working out a new strategy to blow up the other half of the world without blowing ourselves up, and they feed it into the computers, and the computers say, no, you get killed too. And so they keep postponing the nuclear war, and that's why we're all still alive. You never realized you were alive because of John von Neumann, did you? After von Neumann invented the uh, programmable computer, uh, uh, another mutation occurred, and we entered a new stage of evolution, which uh, we call the information age, and that is rapidly phasing out the industrial age. I remember uh, 15 years ago, I heard Bucky Fuller say, pretty soon nobody will be going to offices anymore. They'll all be working at home. And uh, Fuller had lots of reasons for believing that based on the way the computer field is developing, but Fuller also pointed out there are many parts of the world, especially Southern California, where the number of cars on the road is becoming absolutely suffocating. Um, if you left the computers out of your projections entirely and projected the population growth of Southern California, the people pouring in here every month from all over the country and all over the world and the number of cars and so on, you would come up with a projection like in October 1993, everything gets stuck uh, uh, there's one gigantic traffic jam and nobody can move. And in three days, some people will leave their cars and stagger down the San Diego freeway looking for a pizza hut where they can get something to eat. And then we'll never get untangled because of all the empty cars clogging the way. I, I was talking earlier this evening to a man whose uh, field of specialty is transportation problems. And he says that uh, there are many people in that field who are working on ways to accelerate the computer revolution so there'll be more and more people working at home. There's even a word for it now. There wasn't a word for it when I first heard Bucky Fuller talk about it. The word is telecommuting.
You don't commute by car to the office. You, you send your information into the office from your home computer, and they send their information back to you. And that is what is gradually uh, replacing uh, the industrial age telecommuting. And it's, uh, some people think it's uh, going to be accelerated by more and more stringent laws uh, to get people off the highways because the uh, traffic situation is getting to the point where it's critical. And uh, the, com the computer is not only keeping us alive by preventing a nuclear war, but it's changing our whole uh, way of regarding work and going to work. Going to work for more and more people means you get out of the bedroom and walk to the study and start hitting the keyboard. Uh, another way of looking at uh, this process, I, I've been talking about four stages of human civilization, the tribal stage, the Bronze Age agricultural stage, the industrial stage, and the information age. Uh, each one was ten times faster than the one before. We seem to have spent hundreds of thousands of years in the tribal stage and uh, about six thousand years in the agricultural stage and a couple of hundred years in the industrial stage and we're going through the information stage in a matter of decades. But, but to make this uh, clearer, uh, I have some figures which I got from the French statistician Georges Anderle. Uh, Anderle using information theory to estimate uh, information in all sorts of uh, symbolisms. Uh, converting everything into binary, you can calculate the information in a painting, for instance. You can calculate the information in a television show, although you usually find there isn't much. Uh, but uh, how many people here are Prisoner fans? Am I the only Prisoner fan in the... Ah! Well, I know it. I know it. My audiences are always full of Prisoner fans. If you consider the first 70 seconds of The Prisoner, there's more information in that 70 seconds than there is in the average one-hour drama. Uh, and that's one of the clearest illustrations of what information means in information theory. Information is what you don't expect next. Information is that which you can't predict. And Claude Shannon has a very elegant mathematical equation for it. But if you think of the information in a Beethoven symphony as compared with Baroque chamber music, or the information in the first 70 seconds of The Prisoner compared with the first half hour of a George Stevens movie, you have a pretty clear idea of what information means mathematically. Um, Anderle calculating all the information in the world in 1 AD. Why he picked 1 AD, I don't know. It's a symptom of Western chauvinism. Westerners are still hung up on the historical figure of Yeshua ben Yosef, whom the Goys call Jesus Christ. They, they can't even get his name right, but they date everything from what they think was his birthday. And that's off by at least four years and probably nine. But anyway, this uh, this liberal rabbi with a weird sense of humor, Yeshua ben Yosef, uh, is the starting point for Angela's calculations. How many of you saw The Last Temptation of Christ? I thought, Scors I thought Scorsese created an entirely new art form that combines the movie with the happening. Uh, some people are very cynical. They think, uh, you know, Scorsese showed the film to some of the leading fundamentalists on television, some of the leading televangelists, to get their approval, he said. And of course, they didn't approve it. They all, uh, they all went through the roof screaming and hollering and telling all their uh, followers to go out and picket the movie. 
And so uh, Scorsese got millions and millions of dollars of free publicity. He didn't have to pay these idiots anything. They gave him the publicity free. And most people think, gee, that was a shrewd business move on his part. But it was more than a business move. It was a great artistic maneuver to incorporate the opposition into the work of art. Because when you go see The Last Temptation of Christ, first you've got to pass these uh, idiots on the street who are yelling, don't go in, it's a work of Satan, protect your soul, don't be contaminated, the devil is behind this, and uh, Universal Studios is the center of hell, and uh, all that stuff. And uh, this is not the Messiah, he's a terrible man, he's not like the Messiah should be. And then you go into the movie, and you see the same people in the movie. And they're saying to Yeshua ben Yosef, or Jesus Christ, or however you want to pronounce his name, they're saying, you're not our idea of a Messiah. You don't behave like the Messiah should behave. We don't trust you. And then they crucify him. And when they're all through crucifying him, and the movie is over, you come out, and they're outside the theater again, yelling, he's not the real Messiah. He's a fake. He's a phony. We don't like that kind of Messiah. And so the, you got this wraparound, this strange loop. They're in the movie and outside. They're in the movie and outside the movie at the same time, commenting on themselves. Scorsese has created a whole new art form. I, I tried to do that years ago. I tried to write a play that would provoke a riot, and it didn't work. But uh, I'll try again. Scorsese has inspired me. And anyway, starting uh, starting from uh, the birthday of Yeshua ben Yosef. Uh, 1 AD, um, uh, Andola calculated how long it took information to double. And uh, since we're starting from the birthday of Jesus Christ, as they call him on the late 40 channels on the TV screen, uh, I call this uh, One Jesus, because scientific units are always named after some, like the Ohm is named after Ohm, the Farad is named after Faraday, and so on. And uh, it took 1,500 years to double, and we got two Jesus by 1,500. Uh, at, at that point, uh, well, power had been moving steadily westward from Thailand, Cambodia, from the beginning of the Bronze Age. By 1 AD, power was definitely centered in Rome, and so was knowledge, because all the knowledge of the world was coming into Rome through the Silk Road, which went to India and brought in the knowledge of China, too. Uh, by, uh, by 1500, the center of knowledge and power was the northern Italian city-states, especially those where the Medici Bank uh, ran things and built all those great northern Italian universities where the scientific revolution began with Leonardo and Galileo and so on. Uh, the next doubling, which gave us four Jesus, occurred by 1750. And by then, the center of knowledge and power was in the British Isles. If you were to make a graph of the discovery of the chemical elements, the 92 elements of which everything in the universe is formed, you'd find the first nine were discovered in Asia before 1 AD. Then there were a few discovered in southern Europe, and from then on they were all discovered in northern Europe until we get to modern times when they were all discovered at the University of Berkeley, uh, except for a few at Caltech. Uh, but that's, that's running a little bit ahead of the story. You find this westward trajectory whenever you study the advance of knowledge and the accumulation of power and capital. Capital is knowledge. Uh, that's one of the most fundamental errors in the modern world is to think capital is money. Uh, just imagine what would happen if all the uh, money, stocks, bonds, checks, etc. vanished overnight. 
Now, we'd have a hell of a state of chaos where people were fighting over who owned what uh, and so on. But the world, uh, the fundamental human world would not be changed. Everything we've created and our upward rise from uh, the caves would still be here. All the industrial plant, all the scientific laws, all the books, all the paintings, all the music would all still be here. But imagine if all the real capital disappeared. All the real capital, which is human knowledge, if all that disappeared, we'd have no roads, we'd have no cars, we'd have no stereos. Uh, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't be cooking our food because that required knowledge to learn how to cook food. We wouldn't have cups and uh, plates and saucers and tables and so on. We would be back in the Stone Age again. Uh, so that's the difference between money capital and real capital. Real capital is knowledge that benefits or accelerates some aspect of human life. Money is just tickets for the exchange of capital. And it is capital that has been moving steadily westward and mildly northward throughout history. So by 1750, we had four Jesus, and the center of power and knowledge was the British Isles. By 1900, we had eight J, or eight Jesus. It had doubled again, and the center of power was very definitely in the Boston, New York, uh, banking firms and universities. Uh, in 1892, Brooks Adams wrote The Law of Civilization and Decay, the first book which pointed out this westward trajectory of capital. He didn't connect it with the westward trajectory of knowledge, but he did notice this westward movement of capital, and he predicted that by 1950, the British Empire would collapse and be replaced by an American empire, which has happened. Uh, as a matter of fact, knowledge doubled again by 1950. And we had 16J. Um, by 1960, knowledge doubled again, and we had 32J. By 1967, knowledge doubled again, and we had 64J. By 1973, knowledge doubled again, and we had 128J. Uh, the periodicity is 1,500 years, 250 years, 150 years, 50 years, 10 years, 7 years, 6 years, and uh, looking at the number of uh, patents granted every year, the number of new mathematical theorems published every year and so on, it's moving faster and faster. Its knowledge is probably doubling every couple of years now. The von Neumann computer, about which I was waxing so lyrical a few moments ago, is, uh, is already becoming obsolete. The von Neumann computer is a linear sequential device and uh, can only think about one thing at a time. If your brain operated like a von Neumann computer, you couldn't chew gum and walk across the street at the same time. Uh, you'd have to stop chewing gum before you could walk across the street. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't remember a movie and eat your food at the same time if your brain was a von Neumann computer. The human brain does hundreds and sometimes thousands of processes simultaneously. And that is beginning to happen uh, with the connection machine, which was designed by Daniel Hill, Hillis of MIT. There are 30 connection machines in existence now, but they are duplicating as fast as the Norway rat and uh, they are going to replace the old linear computer because they, uh, there's, uh, there's a connection machine at MIT which does 16,000 processes simultaneously. There's a connection machine belonging to the thinking machine company which does 64,000 processes simultaneously. 
uh, the number will be going up faster every year. The speed of uh, travel has increased a thousand times since 1900. Uh, speed of communication has increased a million times. Everything is moving faster. We are moving on a, a wave of tremendous acceleration that seems to be built into the human species. When I spoke earlier about the Norway rat, I was trying to indicate that uh, this randy little rodent uh, seems to have a genetic program for ubiquity. It was not satisfied with one environment. Most mammals never get more than 10 miles from the place where they're born. Uh, the Norway rat has spread itself over the whole planet, and as I said, is now found in intercontinental jets, and I'm sure will be found in space cities within the next 15 years. The human race seems to have a similar program for ubiquity, for going everywhere, and another program that the Norway rat doesn't have, which is for continuous mutation to different levels of functioning, with an acceleration factor built in. Hundreds of thousands of years of tribal life, a few thousand years of agricultural life, a few hundred years of industrial life, and now a whole new stage of evolution is opening up. People who try to calculate these trajectories in terms of the accelerations involved all get a little bit woozy after a while, and they end up sounding a little bit goofy, uh, which, uh, which sometimes happens to me now that I think of it. Uh, Terence McKenna, whom some of you may have heard of, Terence McKenna calculated a great many trajectories and decided that in the year 2012, we'll be going through a new evolutionary mutation every nanosecond. I don't know what the hell that means, but that is the way the trajectories are pointing. It's, uh, it's a kind of curious coincidence and an amusing coincidence that Jose Arguilla, studying the Mayan calendar, concluded that there's a new rock group called the Harmonica Virgins are going to appear that year. Or, or did I get that a little bit mixed up? Oh, it's the Harmonic Convergence, yeah. But it's the same year, 2012. Uh, before the French Revolution, average human lifespan was uh, 27 years. When Engels wrote The Condition of the Working Class in England, average uh, lifespan among the working class was 37 years. That was a, about 100 years after the French Revolution, a little less than 100. Uh, around 1900, average lifespan uh, throughout the Western democracies was 50 years. Uh, now it's 73 years and increasing more rapidly all the time. Uh, in England, a 1976 survey showed there were over 300 people alive in England who were over 100 years old. Ten years later, in 1986, they found the number had increased to 3,000. Uh, there is more research being done on life extension uh, in this decade than throughout all human history previously. We are all going to live, barring accidents, uh, we are all going to live a lot longer than anybody ever lived in previous history. While these accelerations are going on, we are going to be going through mutations equivalent to the changeover from tribal to agricultural to industrial uh, to the information age. We're going to live through changes of that magnitude. And how are we going to adjust to it? Well, that's what Alvin Toffler calls future shock. How do we adjust to it? Well, we are, we are mutating too. Uh, I want to say a few words about the uh, evolutionary function of stupidity. 
Uh, I, I have been rather critical of stupidity in some of my books, and some people think I have a, a grudge against stupid people or something like that. Now, far from it, I'm one of the stupidest people I know, and so how can I dislike the stupid? Uh, I know I'm stupid because um, almost everybody has definite answers to most of the questions I'm still uncertain about, so they must all be a lot smarter than me to have arrived at definite answers already. I'm surprised at how, how many people there are between the ages of 18 and 24 who know so much more than I do, <laughs> for instance. But uh, the, the evolutionary uh, function of stupidity is that it forces the intelligent to get more intelligent. Uh, it's the pogroms that have created the uh, legendary and probably somewhat factual intellectual acuity of the Jewish people. Uh, Einstein created relativity and escaped from Hitler. Uh, the Jewish people have created thousands of important ideas and escaped from thousands of pogroms. Uh, to take a less uh, uh, horrendous example, uh, consider the outstanding example of stupidity in the 1960s, the banning of LSD research. Um, uh, at Harvard, Timothy Leary had reversed the recidivism rate of Massachusetts convicts in a study. He had shown that convicts given LSD in the proper set and setting detached from their conditioned and imprinted criminal programs and developed entirely new neurological circuits and became law-abiding citizens. A follow-up study a year later showed that 80% uh, of Leary's convicts were still on the streets uh, not convicted of new crimes. Uh, the, the national average is that 90% of convicts are back in prison one year after release. The recidivism rate in this country is 90%. Uh, Leary uh, almost entirely reversed that. This was the biggest breakthrough in the history of behavior change. So naturally the government made it illegal. <laughs> uh, if, if one expects stupidity of the government, one could predict a result like that. There were a lot of other researchers doing fascinating things with LSD. They were curing alcoholism with it at several hospitals, for instance. And uh, people were learning languages faster than ever in some research. Uh, when all this research was stopped, this drove the, uh, the researchers who were fascinated by uh, these consciousness mutations into other areas. So John Lilly invented the isolation tank or the float tank. And it turns out with the float tank, you can produce fantastic changes in consciousness. It, it has been shown, you can measure it with uh, modern devices. You can show that people's brain waves move down from beta through alpha to theta to delta while they're in a float tank. When you get down to delta, your body is being shot full of endorphins, which means that you, your immunological system is given a big boost and your brain is being shot full of new neurotransmitters produced by the Delta state, so you're going to come out of it, and for the next three days you'll be getting new ideas you never thought of before. Uh, how many people float regularly? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, flo floating, uh, no matter where you go in the modern world, you find there's a place where you can rent a float tank. Uh, you find them in, uh, not just in California, you can find them in backward places like New York. You can even find them. You can even find them in Berlin. There are places you go in and rent a float. Others who were driven. Well, Stan Groff was doing LSD research in Czechoslovakia. He got. Uh, he came to the United States because he was seeking greater scientific freedom. <laughs> well, I guess Stan was naive in those days. 
when he found out he couldn't do LSD research in the United States either, he uh, started researching other techniques, and he's developed a whole new technique based on Reiki and breathing and yogic uh, techniques together with music at a decibel level, never before heard on land or sea, even at a heavy metal concert. And this produces fantastic <coughs> consciousness changes too. Uh, others went into biofeedback. Tim Leary, being an Irishman, refused to let the government tell him what the hell he could research and couldn't research and went on fighting until they put him in prison, whereupon Leary got cured, as they say in Texas. And uh, since he came out, he's uh, been uh, engaged in the creation of computer software to change consciousness. And uh, the, many of the people in the biofeedback field have gone on to work on direct brain change. Biofeedback uh, requires... Uh, a lot of concentration and uh, hard work and so on and uh, why bother with all that if you can build in a shortcut and so we've got machines like the Endomax you just plug the two electrodes to your mastoid bones and uh, electric current flows through your hypothalamus and you immediately start generating neuropeptides like there's no tomorrow and the neuropeptides uh, act as neurotransmitters in the brain, so you get a lot of new ideas in the next couple of days, and they act as uh, uh, neuropeptides and endorphins in the body and give your immunological system a boost. Others have come up with devices like the uh, Synchro Energizer, which uses flashing lights and sound at the same rhythm, and it turns out you can adjust just by turning the dial. You move your consciousness from the beta state to the alpha, to the delta, to, to, to the theta, to the delta, and at each level you're in a different type of reality. Uh, it turns out that throwing molecules at your brain is a very clumsy and inefficient way to alter consciousness. What we've got to do is work on the electronic level. As Tim Leary has uh, been saying lately, uh, electrons are to the 80s what molecules what are the 60s. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I'll bet that uh, if you're a long-time listener here in the salon, that when Wilson was explaining his theory of knowledge doubling in ever smaller time frames, it probably brought to mind some of Terence McKenna's time wave ideas, as it did to Wilson himself. I'm not sure if a connection can actually be drawn between their ideas or what it even means, but maybe that's something that you'd like to think about on those long nights when you can't get back to sleep. <laughs> also, uh, I should point out that Reality Hackers, the magazine that Wilson sang the praises of just now, morphed into Mondo 2000, which, as our longtime fellow saloners also know, is the magazine in which I first learned about this guy named Terence McKenna. And had I never read that article in Mondo, well, huh, you and I would most likely not be together in cyberspace right now. So a big thank you goes to Are You Serious and Queen Moo for publishing such groundbreaking magazines. Well, as much as I'd like to continue this little commentary right now, I think that it, well, it may be more productive for me to ponder Wilson's idea that there actually could be an evolutionary purpose for stupidity. <laughs> and looking at the state of today's world, I certainly hope that the colossal stupidity we see being exhibited by politicians the world over is going to lead to a breakthrough somehow. <laughs> well, I can at least dream about it, can't I? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>